We've rarely seen the kind of feedback we saw when Governor Mike DeWine and the lawmakers of Ohio decided to deem natural gas green energy. It's so ridiculous. The readers came out of the woodwork. And today we'll be talking about what drove that decision. It's enlightening. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here today with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. We got good stuff to talk about. Let's get to it. We finally do know who came up with the Orwellian idea to label natural gas as green energy in Ohio. Surprise, surprise, dark money once again controls Ohio's politicians. Who did it, Laura? Yes, this is a dark money nonprofit linked to the natural gas industry, and it's been pushing for this legislation for months, at least since July. And these were public records that were obtained by the Energy and Policy Institute, which is a clean energy advocacy organization. And they show the bill was the product of of the Empowerment Alliance, also known as TEA. The Washington Post first reported on these, but Jake Zuckerman got the records yesterday and really dug into them. TEA doesn't disclose the source that it's funded. That's why it's called Dark Money. But its former director, Matthew Hammond, took over after serving as president of the Ohio Oil and Gas Association, which has the fun acronym of UGA. But this is a mysterious group. It has a Washington, D.C. area code. I like how Jake phrased it in his story that somebody answered the phone said they had nothing to do with it. He sent a, an, an email to the address that was listed. But th- it, this is not a, a transparent organization. So their website promises a, quote, common sense approach to engage the American people in an open and honest dialogue about the best way to reestablish the United States as a global energy superpower. Also playing a role in this was the American Legislative Exchange Council. They apparently came up with model legislation aimed at doing just this. All right. But let's think about what really happened here, right? Mm -hmm. We in Ohio elect a legislature. We elect a governor based on them saying they're going to carry out policies in the best interest of Ohio. But that's not what happened here. No. Some rich guys in another state got together and said, we want to change natural gas to give it a different definition because it suits our wealthy purposes. They write it up, they send it to Ohio, and Mike DeWine and the lawmakers click their heels and say, yes, sir. Who is determining policy in this state? Is it the people we elect or is it people like this, these wealthy people that just decide they're going to change policy? I'm amazed because we kept asking questions. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you vetoing it? Nobody ever spoke. And now we find out they're just puppets. There's a marionetteer in another state that is just making them do the dance. What's the point of an election? Exactly, because they're basically paying them, right? They pumped more than a million dollars into the 2022 midterm elections. And when they emailed and said, hey, this is what we want, it went to three Republican lawmakers, Mark Romanchik, Senator George Lang, and Republican, or sorry, Representative Jay Edwards. Obviously, they're all Republicans. But they were, they. you're right. People are elected to represent their cons- constituents and to do what's best for the state of Ohio. And we talk about this over and over again, that it's party over people. Well, it's also re-election over people, right? They want the money so they can advertise, so they can get re-elected. It is not about what's good for Ohio or the people of Ohio. It is what's best for them. And it is it is just a gross manipulation of government. People were speaking loudly about this. I mean, this was preposterous. Nat- the, uh, methane gas, nat- natural gas is a euphemism, 
is the definition of a greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. It develops over the eons inside the earth from decaying matter. And once you use it, it's gone. It's not renewable in any way, shape or form. You could say it's cleaner than burning coal, but it is not green energy. Mike DeWine signed that bill and he did it at like four o'clock on a Friday right. and ducked any questions about it. Now we know why he was doing what he was told by people who have no interest in Ohio. And we had wondered the beginning of this year, you know, Mike DeWine, new term. He's probably not going to run for anything else. This is probably his swan song, his last tenured position, He's 75. And is he going to stand up to the Republican legislature? Well, it does not look like the answer is yes. No, because they're just puppets for the dark money groups. I, I can't wait to hear what new stories we learn about the first energy corruption as the householder trial gets underway. This, you know, Jake Zuckerman has said that trial is going to give people the clearest picture of how government runs in Ohio. Well, his story today gives you a clear vision of how things run in Ohio, and it's not by the people you elect to represent. Well, and, and they stuck it in the chicken bill. You know, yes. this was on a bill to regulate the poultry industry. So, yeah, they weren't and very proud of it. Passed in 36 hours in lame duck. So they might have been drafting this model legislation in July at a, at a conference and emailing it to people, but they didn't want to bring it out then when they had six months left of the legislature and say, let's have public hearings on this. Let's hear what people have to say. They pushed it through the very last minute over the holidays and we're stuck with it. Who wants the legacy of being a puppet for out-of-state interests? And that is what this is. He's just a puppet and didn't even explain himself. He did what he was told. And we're talking about dark money, right? We're talking about what's legal that you can give to this nonprofit and they can give money to legislators to get reelected. We have no idea if there are backroom deals on top of that dark money. Yeah, well, there were certainly backroom deals in the first energy case. And we'll exactly. learn more about that very soon. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the first person to stand up as a challenger to Sherrod Brown in his bid to be reelected re to the U.S. Senate in 2024? Courtney, it's never too early to announce your candidacy for a race. Yes, I guess 2024 has officially started now that it's January 2023. So, you know, a familiar name here has thrown his hat in the ring, Matt Dolan, you know, the state senator from Chagrin Falls, he's considered a pretty moderate Republican in last year's Senate primary to replace outgoing Senator Rob Portman. You know, he, he eventually lost. But in that race, Matt Dolan kind of stood apart from the crowd because he was very much a, an anti-Trump kind of candidate. He tried to distance himself from the former president while other candidates were aligning himself. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same thing unfold going forward in the race against U.S. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. Now, Brown hasn't formally declared, but he's made it pretty clear he's running to retain his his long-held seat. And Do Do Dolan's the first of what will likely be several Republican challengers here. But him being out front, we learned from reporter Andrew Tobias means this go around versus last year, you know, this go around, he'll probably be a more prime target for attacks from fellow Republicans because he is that first candidate in the race. Dolan managed to avoid a lot of that last year in the race in which he was eventually beat out by the Trump-backed candidate, J.D. Vance, for Portman Senate seat. Uh, two years ago, when Portman surprised everybody by announcing he wasn't going to run, 
it wasn't surprising the candidates immediately started to announce they were going to run. It was still two years before the election, which is odd, but but it was going to be an open seat. People wanted to get their foot in the door. This isn't an open seat. Sherrod Brown has proven a formidable candidate against all comers since he started. This is going to be the fourth time the Republicans try to take him down. Uh, I think that could be really hard. Matt Dolan, you're right. He's now putting himself out there for criticism. And yes, he finished a surprising third, mm-hmm. but it was third. The 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 right wing fringe picked their candidate. And it wasn't Matt Dolan who's more neutral. The other problem Matt Dolan has is Sherrod Brown is from Northeast Ohio. Northeast Ohio likes Sherrod Brown. So he's not even going to be able to count on his base to support him. I'm I'm a little bit surprised. It seems like a bit of an ego by Matt Dolan. I came in a surprising third. I'm going to build on it. This is a very different race. Very different race. And and it is worth going into to who Dolan might be facing off against in the primary here, because that'll also shape the race, right? So potential entrants include Secretary of State Frank LaRose. We've heard that name circulating out there for a while. Bernie Moreno could mm-hmm. make another go at it, the Cleveland area businessman. And there's a there's a handful of other folks, including U.S. Rep. Warren Davidson, who who could throw in here. But, you know, as, as Andrew talked to Dolan, kind of reflecting on the last race and what that could mean for the upcoming race, he, he said his takeaway from last year was that Ohioans want someone who, who has an experience being conservative, listens to both sides, and, and make sure that legislation – helps Ohioans, you know, that's the ultimate goal. <laughs> that's what but, he took that, away from last yeah, election. I mean, that's, yeah, that didn't happen. We got J.D. Right. Vance. That's not what we got at all. That's not what Ohioans voted for. What What is he drinking? Well, you know, I mean, he seemed to be pointing to the, the political landscape elsewhere in the country last year, but Ohio was the one state that did go with the Trump candidate. So maybe there's appetite outside of Ohio's Republican Party for that, but I don't know within the state if that's the right takeaway, you know, but we, like you said, this is a little bit of a different race. Sherrod Brown's still in it. You know, he didn't really want to launch into discussing uh, the Dolan challenge at an event this week that he held up in Cleveland where we tried to talk to him, but, but you can expect a lot of national attention in this race, right? Ohio has one of three contested seats that in states that Trump won and there's a narrowly held Senate majority here. So expect this race to get heated yeah. just like last year's. Incumbency matters though in these races. And so this isn't like the JD Vance, Tim Ryan. This is a very different I, I'm surprised that Dolan, I, I just am always surprised that the egos and how it affects decision making. This is not the same as last time around. Fun stuff. I guess we'll be talking about the next Senate race for two full years like we did with the last one. It's today in Ohio. What's at stake before the Ohio Supreme Court as it considers Attorney General Dave Yost's bid to freeze the assets of Charles Randazzo, who's not charged with any crimes, but whom First Energy has admitted bribering? Lisa, this is a fascinating case. I don't know how the Supreme Court will come down on this. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And it's Sam Randazzo, not Charles oh, sorry, Randazzo. sorry, Sam, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. So the Ohio Supreme Court says it will take up uh, Attorney General Yost's challenge on freezing $8 million in assets of Randazzo, who is the former Public Utilities Commission chair. And this is all in connection with the House Bill 6 bribery case. You know, of course, last year in 
July, First Energy admitted to paying Randazzo $4.3 million. And that was, you know, just before he became chair. Um, so Yost amended a civil lawsuit that he filed against First Energy to include Randazzo as a co-defendant. He asked a Franklin County Common Pleas judge to freeze up to $8 million in Randazzo's assets. Now that was granted, but it was overturned by the 10th District Appeals Court. They said that there was no viable explanation for the seizure, but Yost was, you know, he did it because he feared Randazzo would try to liquidate these assets. And as we need to state, Sam Randazzo, even though his home was raided by the FBI, he has not been charged and he has denied any wrongdoing. Uh, but Dave Yost is, is glad that the Supreme Court will hear his case. A spokeswoman for his office says that they're pleased that they will take it up. I'm still surprised Randazzo has not been charged because you do have First Energy saying, yeah, we bribed him. Here's the money we gave him. This is what it paid for. So you would think that the Justice Department would have charged him by now. You got to wonder, does he have a role in the householder trial? Has he cut some kind of deal where he's going to be a witness that comes in and says, oh, yeah, I did all these bad things and that there'll be an information charging him later? That's the uh, only viable explanation that he's singing like a bird. But but if that's the case, then the, when the Supreme Court is hearing this, they're going to have the benefit of knowing all that. And I would think then it's a slam dunk. You freeze the guy's assets, right? If he, mm -hmm. if he goes in and sings like a bird on the stand, then I think it really gives Dave Yost more of an argument in favor of getting those assets frozen. Good stuff. I mean, it's, it's interesting how as we get on the eve of this trial, all sorts of interesting details about the corruption are coming to the fore. And I suspect the six-week trial will be a nonstop flow of that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, Ohio has more or less declared war on the Bradford pear tree. Why would Ohio be going after a basic fruit tree? Because it's a nuisance. Uh, this is the Bradford is the most common variety of calorie pears. I did not know what a calorie pear was until I read Susan Brownstein's story yesterday. She's our gardening columnist and she is delightful. This was actually the the highest trending story on our site yesterday for some time. So everybody's interested in these, these uh, pear trees. They're native to Asia, really recognizable in the early spring when the trees erupt in white flowers. They're very pretty. They do smell bad. And the trees were bred not to bear fruit. And they've been used as a popular landscaping tree since the 1960s because they grow really fast. They're pretty. Uh, but they have about a 20-year lifespan, and they have these problems where their, their growth, which was supported by fragile connections at the trunk, they would split and break during windstorms. They cause all sorts of property damage, cleanup headaches, and they can end up bearing fruit if they get cross-pollinated. And then you have this messy fruit, sharp thorns, and they're a non-native species. After looking at what happened with kudzu, after you know all of the Asian carp worries, they decided we are going to take action against these trees and ban them, which this happened. It took effect this year. I, I didn't know this was coming. Yeah, I, I this one took me by surprise, but I, you're right. People were just fascinated to read about this. So once again, our gardening columnist comes through. Well, and so the Cuyahoga Soil and Water Conservation District is actually taking this a step further in some areas, uh, parts of Beechwood, Lindhurst, Highland Heights and Richmond Heights have this special program where they will come out and actually remove those trees for you if you don't want them. Also, bush honeysuckle, Japanese barberry, 
Forsythia, Bernie Bush, and Privet. I love Forsythia. I think it's so pretty in March. It's the first thing that blooms. Right, I had no right. idea idea it was a you know uh, a nuisance. I didn't well, either, and I just planted five of them. They sell it at gardening stores. <laughs> if, if you prune them, you're fine, but if you let those things go, the branches eventually touch the ground root, and they just keep spreading and spreading. Um, so I can see why people would see those. But you're right. They're beautiful and for a very brief period mm-hmm. in the springtime. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are Ohio's most populated cities with high proportions of people without access to cars? Courtney, not having access to a car puts people in a very desperate situation, especially if they're not close to public transportation. They can't get to doctors. They can't do shopping. It kind of keeps people in poverty. Where are cities with the worst problem? Yeah, huge populations of households without cars in Cleveland and East Cleveland. This was a data story from reporter Zachary Smith. And, you know, these two cities are two cities top, top the list of most populated cities in the state for homes without access to a car in East Cleveland. The numbers are a bit worse than in Cleveland. In East Cleveland, it's over a third, 35% of households don't have one. And in Cleveland, it's about 22.5%. Now, if you look at the state overall, it's a far cry from the median statewide, which is 6%. But, you know, these numbers are kind of at odds with similar numbers from 2016. We found that statewide, you know, the people, the households that own a car dropped about one percentage point in the last five years, which I thought was interesting. As part of this review of numbers, we found that, you know, two wealthy cities in the state have no homes without a car. And that includes a wealthy suburb outside Toledo and a suburb of Dayton. But if you're looking statewide, 92.5% of Ohio households have a car and almost 40% have two. So, those in Cleveland and East Cleveland um, are not along with the state average there. Well, it's one of the reasons, I think, that some advocate for making public transit free because it would equalize somewhat the access people have to getting where they need to go. The lack of transportation is, like I said, a key factor in continuing the cycle of poverty. Yeah, and, and that is a huge reason often cited by advocates um, who want more funding for RTA just look at the, the the residents who live in the city without it. They, they need these services. And that's also been a big discussion as Cleveland City Hall moves to a complete and green streets kind of philosophy and laying out roads. Roads aren't just to be car oriented anymore in the city. They're supposed to accommodate pedestrians, bicyclists, and transit users because of that. All right. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, why has autism been a line in the sand for the Ohio State Medical Board when it comes to medical marijuana? And what are the chances that might change? I don't know, but there's a group called the, well, not a group, as a hospital. The Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus has testified against efforts to get autism put on the list of approved conditions for medical marijuana for every year. So, you know, this is about three years running. They say that they, there's not enough evidence. There's not enough, you know, research on this. And parents got very, and they also said something about that, uh, 
parents, oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I'm going to skip over that. But anyway, um, the Ohio State Medical Board has petitions from the public to add autism spectrum disorder to the list of approved conditions. Like I said, third year in a row, the Ohio Medical Cannabis Industry Association submitted for autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, and also irritable bowel syndrome. Their executive director, Matt Close, has seen with his own eyes, how marijuana can help with autism with a teen that helped curb his self-injury tendencies. And then Laura Hancock talked to a Columbus mom, Leslie Stokes. She has an autistic son who'd been taking medical marijuana for seizures starting back in 2019, but she started to notice that it helped with his rage and self-injury issues. So she, you know, was microdosing him and she said that it decreased his episodes of rage from day to two times a month. So the medical board, when they get these petitions, they look at expert testimony and efficacy research before they decide. And they've only added four conditions since 2016. So they're not in a hurry to do this. I I just don't understand why they've hesitated. They've put so many different conditions that have nebulous backgrounds in. And this is something that people feel strongly about. Why not? give it the shot. Um, it does seem like the legislature may take this into their hands by changing the way we pick the conditions for medical marijuana. That's correct. I know there's a bill that's been circulating uh, about how they would add any condition that could reasonably be expected to be relieved by medical marijuana, which would really open it up to a lot more things. Yeah, that that probably is the way to go if the board is going to continue to be recalcitrant. Interesting story. We'll have to see if it makes any headway. It's today in Ohio. A recent COVID study out of Case Western Reserve University has distressing news for users of some kinds of illegal drugs. Laura, why should they be concerned? Because both drug use and COVID can mess with your heart, and together they can be incredibly dangerous. There is this mountain of evidence that the virus that causes COVID harms the heart and the blood vessels and boosts inflammation throughout the body. And the CWRU study that was released in December, it it shows that when you you use drugs together and you have COVID, the risk of developing the inflammation of the heart is substantially higher. And that's called endocarditis. It can be fatal without treatment. And it's already increasing overall in the country a lot because of opioid and stimulant use um, in the United States. We're talking about opioids, meth, cocaine, and then you add in COVID and the results can be deadly. Sorry, I got noise outside my house. I've been muting. Uh, the Gretchen did stories about COVID recently that talked about how long COVID forms by taking up residence in different parts of the body. And for for the heart, the long-term heart area, that's one of the thoughts is it takes up residence there and creates this issue. And we do know that certain drug use blows apart the heart. So this is scary stuff. It is. And it's just warning doctors to be very aware of this. About 3 million people in the United States meet this criteria for opioid use disorder. And 71, sorry, 75% of the 91,000 drug overdose deaths in 2020 involved an opioid. So we already know opioids are a huge problem. So if somebody gets COVID, I guess that's a question you should, the doctor should be asking immediately. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Gretchen has another story we want to talk about. Hepatitis C has been wrecking people's lives for ages. 
But Gretchen reports that there is a cure. What did we learn from her story, Courtney? Yeah, Gretchen kind of reported this through the lens of a woman from Euclid, a 53-year-old mother and grandmother, Megan Kilbane, who had been dealing with hepatitis C since the 90s. But she came forward and she wanted to share her story to let other people who are dealing with the disease, you know, know that there is a, a new generation of, of antiviral therapy out there. So, so when we look at this drug, it was, these drugs, it was they were first made available about eight years ago. And at the launch, they were very expensive, pretty hard to get. A lot has changed in the last eight years, and, and they're much more widely available now. And Megan Kilbane, uh, who, who Gretchen spoke to for this story, she ended up undergoing treatment last May, and, and she's at a point now where her hepatitis C is is considered cured, and, and she wants to get get the word out about this. You know, Gretchen in her reporting and Ms. Kilbane from Euclid both talked about the stigma associated with hepatitis C. You know, a lot of it comes down to getting transferred through intravenous drug use and through needles, and so you wrap up the, the, the stigmas associated with drug use and addiction and all of that baggage. And it leads a lot of people to not seek out treatment. And and like Ms. Kilbane, if the last time you learned about treatment was 25 years ago when, when there was, you know, you had to go through a bunch of injections for the better part of a year, this new treatment, you just, you take drugs for a few months and, and it can, it can offer great success to folks. Yeah, it's a it's a good news story, and I the study came out about a month ago. Uh, I'm glad she caught up with it because anybody that's dealing with that will want to know that there is hope. It's today in Ohio. I'll be interested to hear what people think of the results of this next story. Tower City has gone through a long era of neglect, so it's news that four new businesses are opening there. Lisa, what's coming to the Terminal Tower shopping area and? Is it enough to bring people back to a shopping center? I think that remains to be seen. But yeah, there are four new businesses, two of them food-related and two of them kind of beauty-related. So open now already is Media Luna, Media Luna Bakery, which I'm sorry, it's opening soon. Uh, they're going to be serving empanadas, arepas, and burritos. Um, that's going to be in the food court. Couture Creations, which is a gourmet cupcake and cookie store. They do custom orders and bulk orders. They're going to be on the first floor between Public Square and Skylight Park. Their opening date is to be determined. The ones that are open already, the Lash Bag, which is eyelash extensions, skin care, and apparel by appointment, and they're next to Claire's. And then the Blush Gallery, which does photo shoots, makeup sessions, you know, uh, doing bridal packages. And they're going to feature products from local business owners and that's open now on level one. So this kind of continues a, a maybe not steady flow, but a flow of, you know, filling storefronts that have been empty over the last several months. I don't know, though. Is it enough to bring people back? Laura, you mentioned yesterday you had reason to go to Legacy Village recently and you found the place to be as dead as could be, although I guess Crocker Park continues to thrive. Is anybody going to go through the hassle of driving downtown parking in that horrible tower city parking lot just to go to these stores no and i think what really hurts tower city is the lack of people going into the office every day mm -hmm. right i think the food court was doing really well because it was a spot you could get to on foot easily get a, a large choice 
of, you know, selection of food, eat quickly and go back to your office. If you don't have to do that, I don't know why you would go to Tower City. And, you know, I have these grand memories of my, you know, teenage years going to Tower City for the first time with my mom and my sister and coming up from that escalator from the parking garage. And like, it was magical. It had a two-story J Crew. okay? That was a big deal to Suburban Girl. And it had a Warner Brothers store and all, you know, the Higbee's was still there. And it was so, it was such a destination. And then they built these things out in the suburbs and people started going there instead. I mean, not that there was, I mean, there were always malls, right? But something like Crocker Park, something like Legacy. And then when you built Pinecrest, everything leaves Legacy and goes to Pinecrest. And it's just this cycle. And I don't think there's enough business maybe to go around to all the retail we still have in Northeast Ohio. Well, and I, you know, and I can go back even further, Laura. I used to take the rapid downtown in the 60s before there was Tower City Mm -hmm. and you'd end up in the basement at Higby's and it was a very, you know, destination. It was very busy. But I think uh, and, and in Houston, in downtown Houston, there is a tunnel system, and that's where almost all the activity takes place, but it's either food or service oriented. So I wonder if niche businesses are a good idea here. I mean, I think if you want, I, I think you're trying to cater to office workers would be my guess. So you would give them services like, I don't know, like copying services, dry cleaning, whatever. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Anything that's a product-oriented, we all see the Amazon and UPS and FedEx trucks that roll mm-hmm. through our neighborhoods like armies anymore delivering it because you can get anything you want online. So I think you're right. It needs to be service-oriented. Yeah, I just, you need someone to put those lashes on you, right, and tell yeah. you how to do it. It's it's tough. And because there are fewer people working downtown, it's tougher. I mean, there was a day when I first came to Cleveland where that place teemed with people. You'd go over on any weekday and the place was mobbed every concourse. And now it's kind of a ghost town. It's today in Ohio. That does it for the Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. Thursday.